Well, if you'll turn with me to the book of Galatians, we'll continue our series titled Breaking Free. And if you're wondering where I got the title Breaking Free, I got it from uh, chapter 2 of Galatians, chapter 2 and verse 4, where it says the freedom, it has this phrase, the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. And that was being under attack. And in fact, you see the phrase before it in chapter 2 and verse 4. It says, this matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. And so you look at that phrase and you realize Jesus came to set us free. In fact, I love um, in John eight thirty two where it says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And it's not truth necessarily that's in a message, although it is in a message. It's in a person as well. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. And in fact, later on, in a few verses later in that same chapter of John chapter 8, it says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So we're set free in Christ. Christ is the one who sets us free. And what Paul was saying is, here you are, Galatian believers, and you've been given the gospel. You're beginning to give it up. You've heard a different gospel, and those who are given this message want to enslave you. The verse we just read, this matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Slaves of what? That's the question. Are we slaves? Are we struggling with slavery, bondage to something? And I can think, as I began to think this week, all these different things we're in bondage to. We're in bondage to our fears, aren't we? We're afraid something's going to happen, and so we hold back. We don't have the courage to speak up. We don't have the courage to take a step because we're afraid. We're afraid how somebody's going to respond, and so we're walking around like we're walking on eggshells. We're afraid that, that, that something's going to happen, so we're afraid to take a step. We're afraid to take a risk because it might blow up. It might go south. It might go under. A lot of life, we're afraid, and we let fear bind us. And perfect love casts out fear, so we know that in Christ, fear can be cast out. But it has to do with relationship with him. It's as we are in Christ that we are set free. It's as we are in him that we're set free. And that's why this book and Romans and some of the other books in the New Testament are so powerful. Especially Galatians because he's focused on the, dis- the difference between the law and grace. And he's saying, yeah, you've come to faith in Christ, but you're slipping back. You're going back another direction because people have told you that you need to live under law. And you'll hear me talking about that quite a bit during this series. And you'll hear me reference a passage in Romans, Romans 6, 14. Powerful verse. You are not under law, but under grace. If you go to a courthouse, are you going there to get help? No, you're going to a courthouse because a courthouse is where you are judged And then you are punished for failing to meet whatever it is that you're supposed to do. That's what courthouses do. They don't give you help. They may have somebody that comes along, but that's not the purpose of the courthouse. The purpose of the courthouse is to find fault and to to place a punishment. Help doesn't come there. 
only exposure comes there, exposure of wrong and what the punishment do for that wrong is. Cure comes elsewhere. When you talk about the law, it only exposes our sinfulness. The cure is found in Jesus Christ. It's found by being in him. And when you look at the, the Old Testament, you think, well, why did God provide the law then? Because he wanted to expose our sin. He wanted us to see we, we can't keep the law. We could, we could tell God, God, you just tell me what to do and I'll do it. He says, I've already done that. I laid out a whole system of laws and you couldn't keep it. The whole purpose of it was not so that I could become righteous. The whole purpose of the law was to expose my sin, to judge my sin, to condemn my sin, and to bring me to the point where I, needed, I knew that I needed Jesus. That's why Paul, later on in Galatians, says that the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. What was it tutoring me in? What was it teaching me? I'm sinful. I can't save myself. There's no way that I can make righteousness happen in my own life. Righteousness comes through Jesus Christ, through the one who is the cure, the one who is the solution. And so we live our lives so many times thinking that salvation comes, our righteousness comes by keeping a list of rules, by being obedient, by doing the must and should and have tos of life. And those are not the words that a believer in Christ necessarily should use. Because those are all based on law. This is what I have to do. This is what I need to do. This is what I should do. This is what I'm supposed to do. And those all burn you out because there's no way that I can do that. The way that I accomplish all of those things that the law expects is when I'm in Christ because he fulfills the law. So when I'm in Christ, I have his righteousness. When I'm in Christ... I have the pleasure of God. I have the blessing of God in my life. When I'm living under law, all I have is condemnation. All I have is I beat myself up thinking, I can't do this. And and God's going, that's right. You aren't supposed to be able to do this on your own. We are no longer under law, but we're under grace. And so many times it's easy to slip back into law because that's something we feel like we can do something about. But the reality is we always come up short. It only only points out our failings, only comes out, points out our shortcomings. So we live in bondage to that whole deal of law, uh, of, of sin, and judgment. That's why it's so refreshing when Paul in Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. Sin always leads to death. There's always an exposure of sin and then the penalty, death. And, and Jesus says that sets you free. I came to set you free from that whole system. And yet it's appealing for some reason. We keep falling into that. And that's why in the first part of Galatians, we realize Paul points out what the gospel of grace is. And he points it out in verses 3 and 4. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. He tells us what the gospel is. He gave himself for our sins. The gospel is not, he gave himself for my sins so that I can live and try to do the best I can to become righteous. That's not what the gospel is. That's law. 
that's trying to combine the gospel and law and trying to fit them together. The law exposes sin. The law is the x-ray machine that shows the break, but it can't fix the break. The doctor has to fix the break. The law, moral law, shows us that we can't keep it. The law of Moses shows us that we can't keep it so that we find our solution in Christ. Paul said, you're leaving it behind. You're falling back into something else, and it's so easy for us to fall back into something else. It's so easy for us to think that somehow we've got to do this other thing, and it puts us back into bondage. And so we live in bondage by the lies that we tell ourselves. We live in bondage by the fears that we have, by the anxieties that we have. We live in bondage for so many other things. And we don't even realize it. Don't realize the depth of it. One of the things that I realized this week was that I, I, I was, uh, there's a lie that I've been telling myself about my weight. I've been trying to lose weight. For some reason, this time it's been harder. I haven't lost hardly anything. And, and I'm thinking, what's the struggle? Why am I going through this? And I woke up in the middle of the night, which is usually my habit, I'll wake up in the middle and I go, oh, this is what it is. I guess my brain's still working on it when I'm sleeping. And, I, and I, I woke up and I realized one statement, I'm not a victim. Now let me explain to you why that's helpful to me. Because I realized that I connected eating and stress. And so if I'm stressed, then I feel like I need to eat. Oh, I'm stressed. I'm going to eat that chocolate. I need that. That'll keep me going. That'll give me strength to go on. And I realized I'm living like a victim of my stress. And my answer is eat. I, I don't know why I've connected those two, but I have. It's my comfort, right? And so I find myself, and I realize that's a lie. I'm not a victim. I choose to be a victim of my stress. And I don't need to live there. I've been set free by Jesus Christ. I don't need to live under that stress that I've been living under. And yeah, it's there. I can't make it go away. But I don't have to respond to it in the same way. I need to take different steps. I need to make different choices in regard to that. I need to walk by faith and say, Lord, here's what I'm doing. I'm not sure how to even get out of it. I don't have a solution yet. I, know, I, I realize that that resonated with me when I realized I'm not a victim and I don't need to see myself as that. How many other areas of life do I see myself as a victim of? And you can find yourself speaking victim terminology to your friends and to people around you when you're giving your prayer requests and you're going, well, this is happening to me in life and this is happening. And, and, we, and we give all these different issues and yeah, life is hard and, and we're struggling together with it, but I don't need to be a victim of those things. I need to, I need to, to realize I don't have to live under this. Jesus Christ has set me free. So how can I live the set free life when I'm speaking victim terminology and I, and I realize I need to change my focus to begin with. I need to pray that God would change my thinking like he, like he talks about in Romans chapter 12. That our, that our minds would be transformed by the renewing of his spirit. So we look at Romans 12, we, we look at that. In fact, you might want to look at that just briefly. Uh, powerful passage, something that you can pray over in terms of your thinking here. Uh, it's, I know it's a passage that, that I've gone to often. 
It says, uh, especially in verse 2, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Lord, transform my thinking. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Transform my thinking. Start there and change me. And so when I look at the book of Galatians, I realize Paul is telling us we need to change our way of thinking. We need to begin to live gospel thinking instead of other thinking. We need to live differently. We need to be transformed by him. Well, as he gave the gospel and he tells what it is and he says, you're quickly deserting the gospel and that's, that's crucial for him. And the gospel he tells us in verse four, who gave himself for our sins, simple message. If you, uh, you can also look at 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about the fact that the gospel is that he preached, that they believed. Christ died for our sins, rose from the grave. Simple two statements. He adds a lot of stuff in between. Those are the proofs of the gospel, but Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried. So uh, uh, biblical proof, empirical proof, rose from the grave according to the scriptures. Biblical proof, empirical proof, and was seen by all these people. And he lists who they are. But the two statements, Christ died for our sins, rose from the grave. This is what you believed, he says. So we believe in the gospel message. It transforms us. It changes us. And yet it's easy to slip back into or think that we've somehow got to live this other system as well. That somehow I, I hope I'm pleasing to God today. No, I am pleasing to God because I'm in Christ Jesus. I am pleasing to him. And so I don't serve in order to be more pleasing. I couldn't be, he couldn't be more pleased. I live because of what Christ did for me. It changes my motivation. I'm not motivated any longer to live this way because I have to and I need to and I must. I live this way because you can't stop me from living this way because of what Christ did for me and how he changed my life and how he changed my eternity. And I can't wait to wake up in the morning and say, God, what do you have for me today? Who do you want me to minister today? How do you want me to grow today? What is it that you desire? How can I glorify your name? And I can't wait because of what he's done for me. It's the way it works. When somebody's done something incredibly gracious for you, if somebody were to give you a million dollars, you would, whatever I can do for you, let me know. I'm here. I'd, and and you, you would want to help them. They call, you would come running. Why? Because you have to, must, should? No, because you want to. You're so thankful. Completely different motivation. I think it's because of that reason that Paul moves in next to his testimony. He says, here's the gospel. You guys are deserting it. Let me tell you how the gospel impacted my life. And that's where we see from the, uh, the rest of this chapter and half of the next chapter. So we're going to hit all of that this morning. He starts in verse 13. He says, for you have heard, we get the before picture. You have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for my traditions, uh, the traditions of my fathers. So here was a guy. He was born in Tarsus, so he wasn't born in Israel. He was a, a Jew in the diaspora, and he came and went back to, uh, to Israel. How do I know that? Because I know who taught him. He talks about who taught him, and that was Gamaliel. In Acts chapter 22, when he's uh, uh, appealing to the people of Jerusalem, he's under arrest, and he's appealing to the people of Jerusalem, and they allow him to speak. It says, then Paul said, Acts 22, 3, 
I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. So he moved to Jerusalem and was brought up in that city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. In other words, he's saying, I had Gamaliel. You know who Gamaliel is. They would have known. We don't necessarily know. If you go back to Acts chapter 5, you figure out several things about this Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee. And he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And he was a teacher of the law. You see it in verse 34. It says, But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin. So you learn all these things about him. Well-known teacher. He was well-respected. Paul knew the law. And in fact, he had great confidence in himself, as he says uh, to the, the believers in Philippi, in Philippians chapter 3, he says, If anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, which was what the law required. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, one of only two tribes that didn't defect. There were ten other tribes that, that split off uh, after Solomon's death. And, and Benjamin was, was one of the ones that stayed faithful. Benjamin and Judah. A Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee which uh, those were the ones who cared about the law, who studied the law, who were well-versed in it, the law of Moses. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. In other words, I kept all the law. And you think, wow, he could keep it all? Yeah, faultless, but, but you know in your heart. Yeah, you keep it on the outside, external obedience. What about the inside? How are you doing there? Oops. We all fall short on that one. He says, but whatever was my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He was a zealous person. We see that from, from his statement here. He was in Judaism. He was so zealous that he intensely persecuted the church of, of uh, God and tried to destroy it. It says in verse 14, he was extremely zealous. That word zealous there is the same word that's used for zealots. Zealots were a group of people who were very zealous for Jewish tradition, and they, they were actually uh, very militaristic as well, and they would uh, hurt people physically that weren't keeping the law. And so they, he wasn't a part of that, and he's not saying, he's not saying he, was, he was one of the zealots, but he was using that same strong word that he was very zealous. He cared very deeply about these things. So it wasn't that he was just a hanger-on or he wasn't just somebody who just showed up occasionally at synagogue. He was somebody that, was, uh, that cared very deeply about the traditions of his fathers. And then verse 15, he starts the picture of after. He's given us a picture of before. Now he gives us a picture of after. But when Christ called who set me apart from my birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I was immediately uh, sent, or went immediately into Arabia, but later returned to Damascus. We find from Acts that he was let down in a basket. He, he came to Christ. The, the scales came off. And in fact, we see in Acts chapter 9, his, this whole picture of his testimony. In 9.1, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. 
so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. He didn't care about families. He didn't care about the children. He took men and women. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul was his, his Hebrew name, Paul, his um, Roman name. He says, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are now persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. He was struck with blindness. And he was supposed to go to this house of Ananias. And so we go a little bit forward to verse 10. It says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. Verse 11. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. And, and Ananias goes, yeah, I know this man. I know who you're talking about. Verse 13, Lord Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call upon your name. Are you crazy? Are you sending me to this guy? Haven't I been faithful to you? Do you want my immediate death? I'm just reading between the lines there. <laughs> it's what I would have said. Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument. To carry my name before the Gentiles, which is us. And their kings and before the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. It wasn't going to be an easy life that God was calling Saul to, who later referenced himself as Paul. Because he was going to the Gentiles and his Roman name made more sense to use. He was let out, he, he began to preach immediately after that in Damascus, so much so that, that they were wanting to kill him. And he had to be let out of a basket, out of a city window. Verse 18 says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter. So it took him three years before he compared his message, his note, his gospel with that of Peter's. He stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Um, James, who wrote the, uh, the book of James, the epistle of James, who became the leader of the, of the Jerusalem church, even though the other apostles were there, it was, it was James that God used there in that place as much as any of the others. He said, I assure you, verse 20, before God that I am writing to you is no lie. Verse 21, later I went to Syria, which is probably back to Damascus, and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea. They are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Talk about a transformation. Going from destroying people, arresting people, having them put to death. In Acts 7, he's standing beside, holding the cloaks of all the people as they're stoning Stephen, and he goes from that to a guy preaching that faith. And you just look at that part of the testimony, you go, something happened. Something significant happened in his life. Something only God could do. Our testimonies are powerful because they represent and they show people in the world what only God can do. I would encourage you to 
narrow down your testimony to about two or three sentences and give it as often as you can. It's powerful. It's one of the reasons Paul giving his testimony here that you would be able to give it in just a few statements. And you'll be amazed as you begin to pray, Lord, let me use that. Let me work it into the conversation somehow. I've been able to give that testimony to waiters and waitresses and and people that, uh, that serve me and just give a simple gospel presentation through my testimony. Your testimony is powerful. You may not have all the answers to all the person's questions, but when you give your testimony, that's how God's changed you. That's what Jesus has done in your life. And so I can tell people I was once someone who wasn't seeking after God. And I thought that if I was a good person that maybe I would get to go to heaven. And God completely changed my thinking in that. So that when I was 17 years of age, I received Christ as my Savior, believing that Christ died for my sins and rose from the grave. Completely changed my life. In just a few statements, you can give your testimony. I would encourage you to narrow it down. Sometimes we have this testimony that's, you know, like, you know, two weeks long. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, people are already kind of seeing their eyes, you know, glaze over as you're telling this long extended testimony. Give it in just a brief formation so that you can plant seeds of the gospel around. It's powerful, more than you know. When you look at this, you realize his life was changed and you can't, no matter what you think about why or whatever, you look at this persecuting the church, not persecuting the church, uh, against the message, for the message, something happened, something changed, something dramatic happened in his life and it's something only God can do. He says, 14 years later, I went up to Jerusalem. What, 14 years? You think, God, wait a minute. Are you, you're, you're taking this guy out of action for 14 years? Well, he wasn't completely out of action. We see that he was doing a lot of different things. But why the 14 years? God takes time to develop his people. He takes time to grow us in him. I remember when I was in college, somebody said, you know, you get impatient with your spiritual life and you want to be further along than you are. He says, something to just kind of keep in mind. It takes six months to grow a squash and years to grow an oak tree. Which one are you going to be? A squash? Uh, I think I'd rather be the oak tree, right? In fact, that's a picture that that Isaiah uses as he talks about uh, us. And he talks about our spiritual lives. Uh, And he says, if I can find it here. Here it is, Isaiah 6, 1 to 3. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from the darkness for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. God wants us to be oaks of righteousness. And it takes time to build that. And he builds that into our lives. And we see that in a lot of the people that God used. We see it with Moses. He was in the desert for 40 years before he led the people of Israel out of bondage to Egypt. We see that with Paul 14 years later. He says, I went again to Jerusalem. This is chapter 2, verse 1. This time with Barnabas, I took Titus also along. 
I went in response to a revelation, set before them the gospel that I preach, which we know he said earlier, who gave himself for our sins. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. That's the message he told them that he was telling people. He says, I, I set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles, but I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. In other words, I wanted to compare and make sure that the message was something they approved of. Verse 3, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised. They weren't living by the law anymore. Even though he was a Greek, this matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. They didn't change a thing. On the contrary, they saw that I've been trusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. When you gave somebody the right hand of fellowship, it was because you wanted to fellowship with them. You were in agreement with them as, as to what they were all about. When they recognized the grace given to me, they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked that we continue was to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul gives his testimony, simple gospel message. And how it impacted and transformed him. And it was the message that the apostles also agreed with. It was what they used as they went to the Jews, what he did when he went to a new city and he would talk to the synagogues first. He would go there first and talk to the Jews first and then he'd go to the, the Gentiles. The simple message of the gospel is, is a message that transforms our lives. And we've got to ask ourselves, where in my life am I trying to live out from under the gospel? Where have I moved back to the law and where do I need to go back? What deception am I living under? What lies am I believing about myself? And what do I need to believe about the gospel of truth? Because you see, we started by faith. We need to continue by faith. We are no longer under law but under grace. So we need to begin to learn how to live that way and what that means. And that's what he's talking about here in this gospel, or in this uh, gospel, in, in the book of Galatians. That he wants us to understand what it is to live by grace, what it is to grow in grace, what it is to live by faith in Christ alone. And as we do, it'll transform us, it will change us. And not only in regard to our own lives, but we'll begin to reach out beyond as well. As he says in verse 10, they were asking him to continue to remember the poor. You kind of think, wow, why did they stick that on the end? And then you remember Isaiah, oaks of righteousness. For me, for, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Poor in spirit. Poor physically. All of us. Jesus Christ died on a cross to transform our lives so that we wouldn't just live as we've always lived, but we would live for him and that we would live a life of faith, trusting him, that we would begin to, to understand what the lies are and we begin to live set free lives. 
If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Father, we come before you this morning. And we admit that this is an incredible message. We admit that we're in bondage to fears. We're in bondage to anxieties. We're in bondage to so many things in this life. Lord Jesus, set us free. Help us not to live as victims. Help us not to live by the lies that we tell ourselves. The lie that we say that about our self-image. When you say we're fearfully and wonderfully made. When you say that, yeah, we're sinful and yet in Christ, righteous. Father, we, we have a lot of things that need to change in our thinking. Transform our thinking, Lord. Change it. Transform the thoughts in our minds to those which are according to the truth and not according to the lives, lies that we've believed for so many years about ourselves. The lies that we've believed about you that you don't care. We, we find ourselves saying that, well, God doesn't care. Don't you care that I'm going through this stuff? The disciples ask Jesus that, don't you care? Absolutely you care. Absolutely, you are here for us. Absolutely, that, that Jesus Christ died on our behalf. Absolutely. You've said, I'll never leave you or ever forsake you. We're not alone. We're not abandoned. You've come to set us free. Lord, I pray that we would live by faith and live that life that is set free by your truth, by your righteousness, by the fact that Christ sets us free by his death on the cross. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, when we believe on him, at that moment we are set free from the law of sin and death. Help us not to go back to law. Help us to learn to live by grace. Experiencing your forgiveness your love. A motivation that's completely different than anything in this world where we live for the God of the universe because we want to. Not because we're afraid of what you'll do to us because that's been taken care of on the cross through Jesus. Thank you. Thank you that even though there's a punishment, you bore that punishment yourself. And Lord, I pray for those who are struggling along just like me with falling or failing to live by faith, making statements that we don't even realize that we're making because our heart's deceiving us. Lord, I pray that we would live by grace, live by faith, that we would be defined by, I am crucified with Christ. Lord, I pray for those who you may be tugging at their heart today to know you. The fact that they're here as a response that, or as a, a, uh, as a sign or a symbol or something that, that they're, there's something they're looking for. And, and God, I know that you're it. 
I pray that you'd help them to put those pieces together in their mind and understand. I pray that if they have questions, they would ask someone, that they'd come ask me as I stand around this place after the service. Father, I pray that they would, they would come find me and, and ask some of their questions and not remain unbelieving, but believing. Father, I thank you for your love for us. What a great love it is. We worship you and we praise you now. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.